How's everybody doing this morning? Eric, you might want to get me toned down just a little bit, bro. You know how I am. So I loved worship this morning. Loved it. You know why I loved it? I think there's a good way to gauge whether our worship is pure or not. This is what I think. The less reasons that we have to worship, the more pure it is. If it shakes down to we're just worshiping because of God, that's the most pure worship. If I'm worshiping because things are going great in my marriage, I've got plenty of money, my job's good, I don't have COVID, or I've already had it. If I'm worshiping because of other reasons, I get that God's the source of all those and it can shake down to Him. But ultimately, I think the most pure worship is when the only reason that we're worshiping is because God is worthy and we see Him as being that and we're worshiping. That's pure worship. We have a good friend of ours. Her husband's father died. So her father-in-law died. Her husband was going to make arrangements for the funeral. On his way driving back to their house, her husband had a massive heart attack and died. She had two funerals in two days. One was her husband who was 48 years old. At the funeral, she had her hands lifted up, tears streaming down her face looking up to Jesus. How many believe that's pretty pure worship? Some people were offended at that. What in the world were you doing with your hands lifted up at the funeral? She said, I was worshiping my God. Job in the Scripture All ten of his sons are killed. Whirlwind comes, knocks down his houses, his cattle are wiped out. Biggest catastrophe you could imagine. First thing he does is he gets down on his knees and says, God, I worship you. That's pure worship. I think a lot of times we miss the opportunity to give God pure worship because we don't when we're going through a hard time. That's the very time we can demonstrate, I really mean it. It's not because of what you've given me. It's because of who you are that I'm acknowledging you are my God and I love you no matter what. Not because of what you've given me. One of the disadvantages that we have in an affluent Western culture is that we don't get as many opportunities as they may in other parts of the world to offer to God that kind of worship, where you're worshiping God in Iran, even though they just came and raped your wife because she's a Christian, or you've been in prison for 18 years for preaching the gospel and beaten times without number and you can still get on your cell floor and lift up worship to God. That's beautiful. We are conditioned in some ways. This is not a beat down. This is just an encouragement. We're, we're, we're conditioned in some ways that we worship, and we, we leave a meeting going, worship was amazing today. And what we mean was, I felt great in worship. And maybe, just maybe, God's saying, no, the time when you were at the funeral with your hands lifted up and tears coming down your face, that was the purest worship you've ever offered in your life. You know, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is called worship, right? Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, it says that he gave his life a sweet offering, fragrant aroma to God. 
on the cross. That's beautiful. It's beautiful worship. We want in our community, we're, we're, we're wanting to build a mindset where we don't have to be stimulated into worship. Please understand, this is, this is not, in no way a beatdown. It's not at all. I deal with the same flesh that you deal with, right? If you have flesh, raise your hand. Okay, some of you are dead. Um, I, I, I'm, I get it. But if we could think in that way, Father, this is opportunity. And I, I, I do think this way when times are hard and I've got a splitting headache and I've worked out in the hot sun all day, lots of, lots of times, coming home so tired. I worship you, God. Thank you for this opportunity that you've given me to give you pure worship because it's not because you're doing something wonderful for me, even though you do a lot of wonderful things for me. I just want to acknowledge in this moment, without the band roaring me in, without the drum beat driving me in, without the guitar solo wooing me in, when it's just me and my heart saying to the Lord, I worship you. I wonder what could happen in a body if we all had that kind of a mindset about what worship is about. I just wonder. Just a question. Everybody okay? All right. This message that I have is uh, I want to pick up on what Brandon and Allison. How many enjoyed Allison doing her eight ways of worship? Okay. Is that awesome? I'm vertical, okay? That's number seven, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm vertical worshiper. I want to sing to Jesus. I want to tell him how great he is. But I get the others. That's beautiful. So Romans 12.1, be read it this morning. By the mercies of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy acceptable, because that's your reasonable service. So one thing that you didn't touch on, Brandon, that I want to go after today is the whole issue of holiness. If we're going to be a temple, the thing that's the most predominant characteristic of the temple is that it's holy. It's holy in that it's set apart holy for God completely forgot. It's His, and that's what it's used for. So you don't take the holy anointing oil and use it before you go out on town for the night. You don't do that. That's, you'll die for that in the Bible. Nobody uses that. That's only for God. You don't take the showbread off and use it for common means. You don't take the, the incense off the altar of incense and use it in your house because it smells good. You don't do that. that. All of that is wholly given and dedicated to God for worshiping Him and for His purpose. And that is the essence. A lot of us have, have been scarred by the word holiness and we hate it because we connect that in our mind with an external list of rules that we have to keep and your dress has to be this long and you can't dance and you can't go to movies and you can't drink and you can't smoke and you can't do all of these things. I'm not saying all those things are good or bad. Just hear me though. The essence of what biblical holiness is is not about keeping the external rules primarily. That's not, if that's where you think, if that's where your mind goes, you're missing the point of what real holiness is. It's a heart that is holy with a W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy devoted to God, holy belonging to Him. That's really the essence of holiness. I'm all yours. Everything I've got, everything I am, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I'm not choosing my own course. I'm saying, Lord, I wholly, completely belong to you, and I'll do whatever you say. We're going to look in Leviticus chapter 9 to start with. I want to tell you to start out with that some of the things that you hear this morning are going to feel weighty, surprise, not, not intentionally to be that way, 
But, but here's the reality. Our worship is an expression of our revelation of who God is. If our revelation of who God is is shallow, then our worship is shallow. If our revelation of God is deep, then our worship is deep. Okay, that's not hard to get. But there's things about God that are shocking. They're shocking. And this holiness is one of those things that's shocking. So Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22, I'm going to start reading there. I want to make some observations out of this passage. Leviticus 9, 22. This is the first time in the tabernacle where an offering is actually given by Aaron to the Lord in the tabernacle. There's a lot of preparation of making the tabernacle ready, having the clothes just right, all of that stuff, the utensils. This is the first time that it's actually done officially where there's an offering sacrificed for the Lord and offered to Him as worship. Verse 22 of chapter 9 of Leviticus. See, your pages are stuck together in your Bible in Leviticus. If they are, raise your hand. Yeah, most of us. There's some amazing things in the book of Leviticus. But what Leviticus teaches us is God is holy. And we need to respond to Him in the way of recognizing His holiness. In our day and age, in current Christianity, in charismatic culture, we have largely lost this. And so the title of my message today is A Heart Awakened to Holiness. That's where we want to go. There's no real worship possible if we don't recognize who God really is. Then we're worshiping a fantasy that isn't even the real God. So chapter 9, verse 22, Leviticus. Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Would that be you? That's pretty impressive. God's going, I like it. I like it. I like it. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. So we don't really know where they got the coals from. They obviously took them from the wrong place. But look, this had just happened. They went through all these instructions. This is how the Lord wants it done. Their own dad just did it. They saw the glory of the Lord come, but then they decided, ah, oh, there's probably an easier way. They offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out again from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, it's what the Lord spoke, saying, look at this, this is so important. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. God's like, hello, if you're going to deal with me, you're going to have to follow what I tell you to do. Because worship to me is not designer, whatever you feel like doing. It's what I command you to do, and that's what matters. Because I'm holy. And when you don't listen to what I told you, and you went through all of this training, and you decided you're going to do it a different way, you're dishonoring me before the people, going, you can do whatever you want. It's okay. God won't mind. He's a good old boy. He's like, no. I'm holy, and that's not how. You treat a holy God. So, they're struck dead by the fire this time, not the offering consumed. Verse 4, Aaron kept silent. Moses called to Mishael, 
And Elizaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle, Uziel, and said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they dragged the boys out that had been killed by the fire. They came forward and carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die and that he will not become wrathful against all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of the meeting or you will die. For the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout all your generations. This is shocking. This is really shocking. These guys come to, they're trained as priests. They do it another way other than what the Lord says. Bam, struck by the fire of God and killed in the presence. And Moses says to Aaron and his brothers, you guys, you better not come in here and start to wail and mourn in, in the altar area. Like that. If you do that, you're going to die too. You don't do that. That's not how we do it. And if you go out of here because you're going to mourn and the anointing oil of the priest is upon you, you're going to die when you walk out that door. You don't do that. That anointing oil only stays in here, according to God. How many think that that's really harsh? feels harsh. You know why it feels harsh? Honestly, it's because we don't have a good paradigm. We don't have a grid in our mind for what it means that God is holy. He is different and other and more worthy infinitely a thousand times over than we can possibly grasp or imagine. So we're supposed to offer our bodies a living sacrifice holy unto Him in worship. That's our reasonable service. That's what you do to a God who is like this. I've got a few true and false questions on this test. My students don't like my true and false questions. Is that right, Nick? You have to think through it and see the way it's worded sometimes. Here's the true and false question. Is God less holy today than He was in Leviticus? Is He less holy now than He was in Leviticus? No. He's not. He's the same God. Holiness is not so much the external compliance with rules as it is a heart that rightly honors and treasures who God is, embraces His values as being completely right, and recognize His absolute ownership of us. That's what holiness is. There's a false grace message that's out there today in some circles, in charismatic circles. And it basically says, ah, it's no big deal. God doesn't really care. And... Aaron would beg to differ with you. He does. He cares. And it matters to him that we treat him as holy and that we honor him as holy. There's a man named Isaiah, prophet of the Lord. He ministered to four different kings in Israel. His prophecies, he prophesied more of the Messiah than any other prophet. His book is quoted more often than any other Old Testament book in the New Testament. He was a holy man, probably the holiest man in right standing before the Lord in all of the nation. He gets caught up in this vision in Isaiah chapter 6. And he sees this massive throne room with pillars, and they're shaking because the seraphim are crying out to one another, holy, 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 he's holy, he's holy. They're crying out to one another because as soon as they get a glimpse of him, they're going, he's holy. They're covering their face and their feet. He's holy. 
Isaiah comes into this, and God's majesty is so magnificent that the entire massive throne room is covered with the train of his robe, measuring how majestic he is. And when they're saying that, the pillars of the temple are shaking. And Isaiah, this holy man, he cries out. He says, woe. So we, we don't get the force of this. The word woe was actually the chant that they used in funeral dirges. Mourning the dead. And many translations will translate it something like this. I'm a dead man. I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. I've seen the Holy One of Israel. I'm dead. Most of us have never had a single encounter with a God like that. And the Lord, John, in John chapter 12, when he refers to that vision, he said that Isaiah saw Jesus. He saw him. And the Lord said to him, no, I didn't bring you here to kill you. I brought you here to cleanse you and to mark you. From now on, It's not just going to be the God who's holy because that's what I read or somebody told me. Now it's going to be the God who's holy because you saw it and he marked you with it. And you can never go back to the way that you did it before. You can't. So Isaiah coined this phrase after that experience. He's the one throughout Scripture 26 times in his book. He calls God after this the Holy One of Israel. It's only used one other time in the entire Old Testament, and that's somebody quoting Isaiah. He was so marked by this experience, that was now who God was to him. He's the Holy One of Israel. And when he's prophesying, he incorporates it into his prophecies. He's going, you're going to run and trust in Egypt? No, that's not the way you treat the Holy One of Israel. He's worthy of all of your trust. You don't do that to the Holy One of Israel. And he says it so much that in chapter 30 of Isaiah, they finally say to him, listen, no more of this talk about the Holy One of Israel. We're done with that. We don't want you to say that anymore. Stop talking. Stop using that name. He's marked. He's marked. I carry this burden in my heart. That we as a church, because I've walked with Jesus for 43 years, and I've rarely tasted a drop of this. The closest I've ever come is when the Lord disciplined me over something that I did that displeased Him. Yeah, he's whipped my butt. That's, that's the closest that I came to feeling that kind of a sense of, of His holiness. But by and large, we have God in this little box that's like a fuzzy slipper. And he has to fit in that box or we don't want it. And and I just wonder if in heaven the culture in the throne room, and you see it in Revelation 4 and 5, if the culture in heaven is that everybody, including the angels, are crying out, holy, 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 holy. He's not just holy. He's holy, 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 and it never stops. They keep saying it back and forth to each other. Hey, did you see that? He's holy. Did you, yes, I saw it. He's holy. Did you see that? He's holy. Yes, I saw it. He's holy. I get it. But they can't stop because it's so overwhelming. Isaiah became marked with it. And I'm like, Jesus, are we really? treating you in the way that we interact with you like you're holy like this? Do we even see a glimpse of this? I get you're my sugar daddy. I get that you're my Santa. I get that you're going to bless and comfort and stroke me. And I get that you have the hairs of my head numbered. I get, I get those things. And I, I'm thankful for his comfort. Trust me. I'm thankful for His mercy. But when you see God in His holiness, I can tell you it has multiple effects. One of them is your gratefulness meter will go through the top of the roof. 
every day of your life, you'll say, God, thank you for the blood of Jesus. I couldn't even come before you and pray. I couldn't walk into your presence and pray. I'd be struck dead. Holy. Leviticus 16. Just a few verses here. Sorry if this is intense for you guys. I feel it in my belly. Leviticus 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 and then 12 and 13. Look at verse 1 of 16. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. So he's picking up there from chapter 10 when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, and Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic. And the linen undergarment shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. If you don't, this is the truth. It sounds funny, but it's true. God says in other places when he's talking about the garments of the police, if your flesh isn't completely covered when you come to the presence of God, you're dead. If you don't wear the holy underwear, you're dead. That's true. He's he's holy on a level that we can't even articulate. And we haven't been marked with it, and we need to be. What would happen if we gathered together in a meeting, and we're all dancing around and shouting and saying, Yes, God, you're going to heal and bless and all whatever. What if he came in like Isaiah saw him in our meeting? How different would our life be when we walked out? I would venture to say that we wouldn't do the same things that we usually did. We wouldn't partake of the same entertainment that we usually did. We wouldn't waste as much time on social media as we used to. Is it okay if I say if I talk like this? quote by John Piper. (laughs) Twitter has its purpose. If only to show, Twitter and Facebook, he says, has its purpose. If only to show that the real reason for my people's prayerlessness is not lack of time. Exodus 34. How many love reading in the Old Testament? Paul said that all of these stories were written for our sake. This is 1 Corinthians 10. If you want to read there, you should sometime. I won't pull it up on the screen for time's sake. He said that all of these things were written for our sake and for our instruction upon whom the ends of the world have come so that we might learn from them, not for our entertainment, not for our information, but for our instruction. We're supposed to look at what happened in these stories and go, oh, man, when I come before the Lord, I better treat Him as honor. I better treat Him as being holy. Well, I can tell you that a burden that I carry in charismatic circles in being around it my, my whole Christian life. The thing that grieves me, and I carry this burden, and I do grieve over it sometimes. I grieve over it. I get cranky and irritable and I'm mad because I'm grieving over it. What is it? That Jesus gets dishonored in his own house. I hate that. I despise it. 
I despise it when it's a sideshow about somebody's gift, this or that. I hate that. Sorry, I'm getting edgy today, aren't I? I don't mean to be it that way. I, I just feel this in my gut. We, we need a revelation. When is the last time, can I ask you, when is the last time that you cried out to God and said, God, show me who you are in your holiness? I know we cried out and said, God, comfort me. God, supply my needs. God, bless my marriage. God, heal my sickness. God, do all these things for me. But when was the last time that we said, God, show me your holiness until I tremble? And who I'm dealing with here. Because evidently these boys, even though they were around it, they did not realize who they were dealing with. That's not how you treat the living God. He's holy. Exodus 34, verses 10 through 16. So good. You guys doing okay? It's almost 12. Exodus 34, verse 10. Then God said, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any of the nations and all of the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. Well, that sounds pretty good. God, you're choosing out this nation of Israel to be your covenant people, and you're going to show yourself doing miracles in a powerful way. And we all say, yes, God, come and do the miracles. But let's read the rest of it. Verse 11. Be sure to perform what I'm commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather you to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their Asherim. For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. This is such a powerful phrase in the Hebrew. The Lord there is all caps if you have a Bible like mine. That means it's Yahweh. Yahweh. His name is jealous. What does it mean that Yahweh's name is jealous? If his name is jealous, that means it's at the core of his being that he's jealous. Well, what is he jealous for? He's jealous that they don't commit idolatry because holiness means that you belong wholly to me, completely, my, every way. This is where we have not done a good job in our generation of presenting the gospel. Because we tell people that if they believe that God loves them, they're saved, and that's a lie. It's a lie. You're saved when you make Jesus Christ your Lord. That means you do this. I'm yours and you're mine. Whatever you say now, you're my Lord and my master, and I will do that. It's not that I believe, oh, God, you are good. I believe that. Yes, you love me. I believe that. You're not saved unless you take the ring. That's the gospel that the apostles preached. We have not done a good job with that, in my view. It's another subject. It's part of the reason why we don't recognize His holiness. Because we don't think it matters. Oh, it matters. Verse 14 again, you shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. Yahweh's name is jealous. He is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons. And his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. God is passionate. Do you know the word jealous? Let me just read you something here. 
This is my teacher brain. Are you all right with that? The word jealous, both the Hebrew and the Greek words for jealous refer to the intensity of emotion involved. With the Hebrew especially stressing the rising of the color in the face. How many ever saw your dad like that? I did only a couple times and I learned. Don't do that. Rising of the color in the face. It seems to indicate an ardor or zeal for something believed to belong exclusively to Him. That's His jealousy is part of His holiness. It's an expression of that. We belong to Him. We're holy His. That means that we don't set the rules and we don't barter with God and we don't say this is the way we're going to do it. We do what He said and say yes sir. So, I want to give you just some points out of this um, passage here, and then we're going to go to one more, and then we'll be done, Lord willing. All right. God is jealous at the core of His nature. This is point number one. Yahweh's name is jealous. That means you're exclusively mine. At the very heart and core of how God interacts with His people, there is a sense of exclusivity. You're mine. If you're married in here, how many of you are okay if your wife texts some other guy and just say, well, we we didn't have sex, we're just texting? Do, Do you know that idolatry is not an exchange of gods? Not not typically in the Bible. It's an addition of. In Israel, they most often, when they were in idolatry, they still worshiped God in the temple. But they added other gods that they worship too because this is a fertility goddess and if you go there to worship, then there's hookers in the temple. Or this is a fertility goddess because if you go there, then supposedly my crops are going to get better. And, you know, after all, we haven't had a good crop, so God hasn't been coming through on that. So I'm going to add some other lover to the list. I'm not going to say I'm divorcing you, God. I'm not going to say you're kicked to the road. I'm going to say I'm going to add others. Idolatry is always adding other lovers. It's not exchanging completely. That's, that's very rare. It's usually they worship God and their idols. It's divided love. And that's not okay with the Lord. He said, you're mine. When He bought us, this is Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 6, you have been bought with a price. Right? I said this one time. I said, if I ever got a, a tattoo, that's what it would say, bought with a price. And everybody started to cheer, like, you're going to get a tattoo. I said, no, I'm not going to get a tattoo, but if you raise 10,000 for missions, I will. Nobody's even given me 10 bucks, so just forget it. (laughs) But what happened there was my son and his friend got inspired by that and went out and got tattoos saying bought with a price on. So you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You've been bought with a price. So when Jesus redeemed us, He purchased us. That's what redemption means. He bought us out of the slave market, and He owns us. Therefore, this is the logic in the Bible, because you were purchased and you're owned by the Lord, therefore glorify God in your body, which is God's. Not only are you God, your body's God's too. I heard somebody say one time, like the things that some of us do with our bodies and the places that we go, we don't recognize or realize that we're taking the Holy One of Israel with us there and He doesn't like it. See, this is different than clothesline preaching. I get the old Pentecostal holiness kind of preaching about don't smoke or chew or run with women who do that, whatever they say. That, that's, really not, that's really not the issue. The external, if, you get, if your eyes are on the externals when you think of holiness, you're missing the whole point. It's recognizing that you exclusively and completely belong to God. Therefore, you have to say, Lord, are you okay with this? Is, this, is it okay with you that I smoke pot? And after all, it's legal now. Is it okay with you if I drink... Because the Bible doesn't say that you can't drink some. 
That's a legitimate question to ask the Lord. I agree with that. The Bible doesn't say that you can't drink. It says you can't get drunk. But it also says that if eating meat or drinking wine causes my brother to stumble, I will not eat meat or drink wine while the world stands. It's pretty strong language from Paul. So for me, personally, I don't drink alcohol. Number one, the Lord delivered me from alcoholism when I was a teenager. And obviously, I have an addictive personality. So I'd be a fool if I said, I'm good to drink a little wine with my spaghetti. Start me down that path, I'd be an idiot. But the other thing, really, the bigger issue is, if I'm at a Bucks game and I'm drinking a Bud Light in there, and here comes somebody out of the church, hey, Brother Barry, is an elder at Heart of the Father. What's that in your hand? Oh, well, the Bible doesn't teach against it, brother. Here's how we have to think. What is best going to represent the Holy One of Israel in the way that I deal with my stuff? Not, well, I have freedom to do that. Whenever somebody argues with me about the freedom that they have, it's always a red light to me. I'm like, okay. What, what pet sin are you protecting here? You know what? I just encourage them. You need to take that before the Lord and really pray. Like if Jesus, the one who sat on the throne in Isaiah 6, if that Jesus tells you it's okay, I'm good with it. But right now you're using this to rationalize what this wants. God is jealous at the core of His nature. God is jealous for His covenant people. God's jealousy involves strong emotion, color rising to the face. God's jealousy is aroused by divided love. He says that in verse 14. If you have idols, you're adding those on. And idolatry comes often. Notice these uh, last couple of points. Verse 15, idolatry comes often by our absorbing the values of the culture around us. So we get mixed loves. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. They would play the harlot with their gods, sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat at their sacrifice. So here's how it happens. The culture around does it, and everybody says it's okay. How desensitized have we become to issues that might be offensive to the Lord? Because everybody's doing it. Everybody in Christian circles is doing it. Dude, it's, it's really not a big deal to, and I'm not, again, I'm not doing the clothesline thing. I'm not, I'm not telling you what to do and what not to do. That's between the one who owns you and you, not me. But for me, I have a super hard time paying God's money that He gave me to entertain myself with things that He says are an abomination. That's just me. I have a hard time with that. Do you know one of the things that if we would keep eternity in view better? Do you know that the phrases that are used over and over again in the New Testament that Jesus said, everything that's hidden will be revealed and everything that is in the darkness will be brought out into the light. And the things that you whisper in the inner room are going to be shouted on that day. And I think about all the things that I've said in secret, I'm like, I really don't want that to be shouted for everybody in this room to hear. That's going to happen. Here's the thing. The Holy One sees it already. He's just going to reveal it at that moment. So if we could live in the light of the fact that we are dealing with the Holy God when we're worshiping Him, there is nothing hidden from His sight, right? Everything is, uh, Hebrews 4.13, everything is open and laid bare before Him with whom we have to do. He already knows. Here's the good news that Jesus made so clear in the prodigal story. You always win the Father's heart with sincere repentance. And if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. True or false? 
Question number two. True or false, God is less jealous today than He was in Exodus. No, no, because that's who Yahweh is. That's who Yahweh is. He says that about Himself. This is my core. It's my name. I'm jealous. You belong to me. Hebrews 12. Are you guys okay? Let's finish up with this Hebrews 12 real quick. I say real quick, Lord, am I lying? They don't intend to. Hebrews 12. Let's just look at it. Verse 9 through 17. I call this passage of Scripture making a very bad trade. Hebrews 12, verse 9 through 17. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His, in His what? In His holiness. You want to share in His holiness? Come on. Nobody does? Come on, Lord. You want to share in His holiness? Part of that process guaranteed is His discipline. Can't get around that. And He does it for our good because He loves us. I can tell you something. All the dealings of God in disciplining you in your life, you are going to kiss His hands and His feet at the judgment seat of Christ for doing that. You're going to kiss Him all over and say, Thank you so much! Thank you so much for taking that away from me. I was such a fool. I was so enamored with something that had no value and I was going the wrong way. And you broke into my life and that really hurt. But I'm thanking you so much because I'm so glad. That you didn't let me, this is a prayer that I have all the time, when I feel the Lord dealing with me on something or rebuking me or correcting me, Lord, please don't let me go my own way. I will surely shipwreck if you don't intervene. Don't let me go my own way. For they disciplined us, verse 10, for a short time has seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That means being in right alignment with the Holy One. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight the paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification. Exactly the same word as holiness in verse 10. Pursue peace and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. How many want to re-sign for the process? I want to re-sign for the process. Let's, let's get back in that process. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no bitter root springs up, causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless Other translations say of that word godless, earthly-minded. Let there be no immoral or earthly-minded person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. What is the point of this passage? Esau, grandfather Abraham, Father Isaac, what a spiritual heritage. Not only that, Isaac was stinking rich. So Esau sells his birthright because he goes out and he's hungry, he's famished. I'm dying if I don't get this. So Jacob says, what do you give me for it? Give me your birthright and I'll give you this bowl of stew. What good is my birthright if I'm dead? Just give it to me, okay. Gives him that bowl of stew. Eats it. Stomach feels better. It's not hungry now. Sold his birthright. What was that birthright worth? Well, in financial terms, you got a double portion of the money, which would have been a fortune. 
But from a spiritual standpoint, you would have been in the heritage and the line of the Messiah, you fool! Promised to your grandfather Abraham. You fool! For a bowl of stew, you idiot! You that pleasure that you had to have right then. You sold the treasure of your spiritual heritage, your financial heritage, the authority that you would have had as the heir of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Not. For what? Temporary pleasure? I think if we're honest in here, we can all raise our hand and say, there's been times where we sold something precious for something that had no value. Lots of times. For me, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. We have a spiritual heritage in Christ. I'm not saying when we choose to go in a sinful or self-centered way that we're losing our salvation. I'm not saying that. But there's something that we lose. Choices matter. Even little ones build up into bigger ones. Like Dave was saying this morning, so true. You see it in counseling all the time. People keep running the red light, and they think, I'm not going to get caught. I'm not going to get caught. And one day, they're paralyzed in the hospital. Friend of ours, I've told this story before in this body, but I don't think real recently, but I'm going to tell it again because it illustrates this point. This girl was in the church that we ministered at years ago. My wife helped to lead her to Christ and disciple her. She was a beautiful girl. Um, she was the kind of girl that when she walked into the room, everybody turned their head and looked at her. Not, to, not because they were necessarily lusting after her, because she was strikingly beautiful. She gave her heart to the Lord. She's living for Jesus. She had a little daughter from a previous marriage, messed up life. And she's walking along with the Lord. She meets a Christian man. He's the studly, handsome dude. It's crazy. It looked like Ken and Barbie. I mean, I'm like, how do these two people get together? I mean, it's, in, it's crazy. He's like this cut. I mean, he's just, a, you know, the specimen of just handsome, you know, the fireman kind of guy on those posters. That's what he looked like. And here she is, the Barbie. And so I actually performed their wedding ceremony. I'm sitting there going, surreal. What in the world? This is so weird. They got married. Moved to Tampa. She's on the worship team at her church. They had a little baby boy. Life seemed to be going well. She's working at a health food store in Tampa. And she meets a guy there that's working there too. And one thing leads to another. And they start to have an affair. And she comes to our house one night. And we said, my wife and I both, she was sitting on our couch. And if I remember correctly, we got down on our knees and we begged her, you have to tell him. You have to tell him what's going on. She had that little baby in a, in a, in a car seat carrier, so young. You can salvage this if you tell him, but you have to, no matter what. Before the Lord, you have to tell him. And she didn't want to because that would have been a hard conversation. So she, what did she do? She went to another preacher to get another opinion. And he told her, well, you really don't need to tell him because that would be cruel to drag him through the emotional pain of it. You should just forget it and just move on. want to scream sometimes. So what happened? Jesus said, if your eye causes you to stumble, he didn't say put a patch over it. He said, stick your two fingers in your head and rip it out of your face. It's better for you to go into heaven with one eye than to be cast into hell with both. So she put a patch over it saying, okay, we're not going to do it anymore. But you know what happened. 
that thing continued because there was never a knife put in that by repentance. Her husband sees texts on her phone, hears a conversation perhaps of that thing, and he says to her, are y'all sleeping together? She said, yeah. And he said, okay, I'm done. And she said, would it have made a difference if I would have told you? He said, it would have made all the difference in the world. Now that I've found out, I know that you would have continued it. And I'm done. They got divorced. She lost custody of her boy. Her daughter ended up hooking up with a drug dealer who killed somebody in a drug deal, and so she went down as an accomplice to murder and went to prison. I saw her face, this sweet, beautiful Barbie on the front page of Polk County's Most Wanted for drug deals. I could weep right now. God's a redeemer. God's a redeemer. And, and I believe he's still working in their life, and he's still going to work in their life. And I'm not saying that the game's over. But you can lose things by being a fool that you can never get back again. The same's true in your spiritual heritage. You can lose things by being carnal, fleshly, self-willed, self-centered that you can never gain back. And that's a terrible trait. He's holy. If, if, we, if we could renew, what would you, what, could I just ask you to put this on your prayer list? God, reveal to me your holiness like I've never seen it before. If, if I could get you to just put that on your prayer list, it would cure a thousand temptations and a thousand evils in our lives. It would cure a lot of our spiritual weaknesses because we would go, no, every day when I get up, I know this one thing to start out with. I'm not my own. I belong to you, so what do you want me to do? You just tell me and I'll do it. I have a problem with people bartering with God and telling them, well, I'm just not going to do that. I had a preacher friend tell me that one time. He had like 25 speeding tickets. We're driving up to a conference. Jack Hayford was speaking. This is the old PTL days. He tells me, Barry, I don't want you to drive. I said, okay, why not? You drive too slow. I said, okay, you drive then. Going through South Carolina. He's got his radar detector on his dashboard there back in the day. I said, yep, I told you exactly when they got you. Perfect. Pull him over, $200 ticket, another one. He tells me after that. Yeah, he goes, you know, I've been talking to the Lord about this, and I just told him I'm just not going to do it. Meaning, I'm not going to stop speeding. I'm just not going to do it. And I'm thinking, you told God you're not going to do it? You told him you're not going to do it? What in the world? You scare me. I don't know if I should ride with you anymore. You told God what you're going to do. That's a total lack of understanding who we're even dealing with here. Holiness is not hard struggle where you deny yourself things that are so great and beautiful. It's just being holy, belonging to Jesus and your whole heart being His. That makes most of your decisions for you right there. You don't have to struggle with it. Well, is, it is it okay if I cut down to only smoking eight cigarettes a day instead of a whole pack? Like, He's holy. What would it be like? If this mindset would be in a body of people where we actually would get up every day and go, you're the Holy One of Israel. 
you bought me with a price with your blood, and I belong to you. And this day, my mission is to worship you by the way that I live and present myself to you. That's my mission for today. How different would life be? I'm going to read this quote from C.S. Lewis on the close. Love this. It's one of my favorite Lewis quotes. It's from a message that he preached. It's in a book now. It's called The Weight of Glory. You should get it. He's talking about eternity in it. Here's what he says. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So powerful. Jesus is saying, you want joy in your life? You know why he was anointed with joy above all of his companions, it says in Hebrews 1, quoting Psalm 45? Because you have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. See, Jesus is more passionate than we think. He loves righteousness and he hates iniquity. And that's why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above all your companions. Jesus was the most joyful because he was the most holy. He aligned his heart with what the Father wanted 100% of the time of his life, and he was filled with joy. Oh, I want joy, but I can't have it if I don't have freedom to just do whatever I want. Wrong. Joy comes from being rightly aligned to the one who made you for himself. That's where joy comes from. He's offering us eternal joy. He's offering us the eternal kingdom. He's offering us himself in his fullness, and yet we're like, yeah, but God, I don't know if I can get over this habit that I've got or whatever. No, no, no. You know, don't choose the mud pies in the slum. Choose what he's offering. Don't, you don't trade. You, you, when, when he's given us this, you don't trade. You hold pat and go, no, I'll, I'll keep what I've got. Thank you. I'm good. Devil, you can offer me whatever. I'm not going for it. It's not worth it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these men and women, for your heart for them and their heart for you. I thank you for your amazing love for us in Christ Jesus, your amazing patience. Lord, I do pray. Lord, you know I carry this in my heart. It burns inside of me. I pray that you would awaken the hearts of your people to your holiness. Lord, would you come and even visit us? I know we don't invite you in this way, but would you break in anyway and just come and visit us and let us have a taste of your holiness and your perfect light that shines through everything and exposes everything. Would you just let us experience that, that we would be drawn in to the worship of heaven? And that all of the things of earth that are trivial and totally worthless would fall away. And that we would not be enamored with them and love the things that have no value and seek the things that have no value. Lord, cure us from our obsession with trivial things. We're so foolish sometimes. And I pray that we would see you in your holiness. And that we would worship you truly by offering ourselves living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable before you. Would you mark us, even this day, Lord, with something that was said here. I pray that you would mark many in this room, that we would not be the same again. We would not be able to go back to our old lifestyle of being obsessed with trivial things that have no, no weight at all. And that our pursuit would now be shifted to go wholeheartedly after you in everything. 
Hello, Lord, come invade this body. Invade this community with you, who you really are. Open up the eyes of our heart to see you, to know you really, to love you with a pure heart, to worship you in a way that truly honors you and shouts, God is the greatest treasure in my life. There is no other that compares. Teach us how to live that way. Teach us how to live that way, Lord. We don't want to stay the same. We want to be different. We want Jesus to be magnified. Amen.